to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Well, this month is November. And in November, we are looking at the third big idea of the Bible, and that idea is prophecy. Now, some people think prophecy is about being able to predict the future, but it's not. In the Bible, God has this idea that everybody who comes into a position of power in the world gets intoxicated by their power. They start losing their way. And so God knows that people who are in power need prophets. And the prophet's job is to see the vision of beloved community. And when the, when the leader starts going on the wrong path, the prophet's job is to speak up and tell them to get back on the right path. Now this week, we're going we're gonna to meet a prophet. And so let's go ahead and show the first image. I want you to take a look up there. Not at the waterfall. Oh, no, not that one. There's like an image of a cave. Oh, that one. There it is. This is the prophet that we're going to meet today. His name is Elijah. And before I read the scripture to you, I, I, I feel like I have to, have to tell you a little bit about this guy, Elijah. Now, who was he? He lived in the 800s BCE. Uh, and after David and Solomon's kingdom that they had built, uh, it kind of fell apart. And it split into northern and southern kingdoms, uh, kind of like what happened to the United States in the Civil War. And this was a time of, of turmoil. So according to the, the book of Kings, right, the northern kingdom's rulers uh, stopped uh, taking seriously God's instructions. Imagine that, rulers not taking seriously God's instructions. And so the rulers... <laughs> The rulers started to do things that, that, that made Elijah uncomfortable. They were consolidating their power, which rulers always do. Uh, um, uh, some people call it selling out, right? Uh, so uh, this, the particular ruler during Elijah's time, King Ahab, uh, married a queen from a, a, another land. Her name was Jezebel. And he also, uh, he also was ruling over some Canaanite folks who had a different god whose name was Baal. And so Ahab started to build some altars to Baal. Now, you remember Moses, uh, who gave these things called the Ten, what are they called? Ten Commandments, thank you. No other god. Commandment is... When he was building these um, altars to Baal, maybe he was walking on some thin ice. So here shows up Elijah. Elijah, we don't, he, he, he came from a place of his physical appearance, except that the Bible says he was hairy. Right? He's a hairy guy. Uh, and he also dresses in a leather belt, which kind of means he didn't really go in for all the niceties of dressing and physical appearance that some of us go in for, myself included. All right, so um, enter Elijah. He's coming, and he, he has the power of God. This picture, do you see what's up here with Elijah? What's up there at the top? 
You see a bird? What kind of bird is it? It's a raven, yeah. Elijah goes out into the desert during a time of drought, and God feeds Elijah every day. He sends ravens uh, to feed Elijah with food, with meat, and with bread. And Elijah uh, cares for the poor, right? He spends time with a widow. Um, and uh, do you have, is there the, the widow picture up there, Tim? Oh, yeah, so he, he spends time with this woman. Who is, um, who is in a really difficult spot, and he says to her, uh, will you take me in and feed me? And she's like, listen, brother, like, I don't have enough for my family. But, but she takes him in, and then Elijah gives her endless bread. So she's fed forever. And then her son gets sick, and while Elijah is living with her, her son gets sick, and she's afraid that he, he's going to die. And Elijah bends down, and Elijah brings him back to life. So Elijah has these incredible powers, right? Incredible. The power of God is in Elijah, but we haven't seen just the tip of Elijah's power yet, because in the very next chapter, um, Elijah's getting agitated about, about Ahab and Jezebel, the king and the queen, and he, he says, we need a showdown. What we need is a, a showdown, a public Smackdown, right? So, uh, Tim, is that first picture that you showed, right? A lot, yeah, there it is. Elijah says, all right, we need to get two altars out here. We're going to build two altars. Uh, prophets of Baal, you build your altar over here, and I'm going to build an altar to God over here, and we're going to offer a burnt sacrifice. And he says to the prophets of Baal, uh, you guys uh, call on your god Baal and, and tell Baal to light your altar on fire first. And then after you're done, I'll ask God to light my altar on fire next. And so the prophets of Baal, the story says, get out and they do their dancing and they're all this ecstatic dancing and they're calling on Baal and nothing, nothing. And Elijah, at this point, is mocking them mercilessly. Uh, truthfully, right? In the scripture, Elijah asks, maybe your God has gone out to use the restroom. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you. All right. And so then Elijah says, all right, everybody look over here. Uh, and he takes water and he pours water on his altar. Three times he drenches the thing with water. And then he, Elijah says, God, do your thing. And the altar goes boom, and it erupts in flames, and everything is on fire. And then Elijah orders the death of the prophets of Baal. Well, Jezebel, Jezebel the queen, learns about what's happened with the prophets, and she demands Elijah's death. And so Elijah runs away again. He runs away into the desert. He's terrified for his life. And he asked God to actually take his life. He says, I want to die. But God feeds him in the desert. And so he runs, keeps running, and he goes all the way to Mount Horeb, which is the, the famous mountain where Moses met God and got the commandments. And so Elijah is finally there, and he goes into a cave, and he goes to hide in a cave on Mount Horeb. And that's where I want to read to you what happens from the scripture. Elijah's hiding in the cave. And the Lord's word came to Elijah, and God said, Why are you here, Elijah? 
And Elijah replied, I've been so passionate for you, God. The Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They've murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they want to take my life too. And God said, go out, Elijah. Go out from the cave and stand at the mountain before me. I am passing by. And then a very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke the stones apart. But God was not in the wind. And then the ground shook and there was a massive earthquake. And God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a huge fire, a blaze of fire. But God was not in the fire. And then the scripture says, after the fire, there was a sound. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat and he went out of the cave And a voice came to him and said again, Why are you here, Elijah? And God said to Elijah, Go back home. Go back through the desert to Damascus and anoint Hazael, king of Aram, and anoint Jehu, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha to succeed you as the prophet. And that is the word of God for all of you, the people of God, Thanks be to God. Elijah, like many of the prophets, is filled with righteousness. His righteousness is about apostasy. Do you know what apostasy is? It's essentially walking away from your beliefs, from abandoning your religion or your party, abandoning your people. Apostasy is not an easy word for us enlightened people to use. The only people who really seem to use this word seriously are fundamentalists, zealots, not us. But I've been thinking a lot about apostasy. I've been wondering if we've been living with apostasy for three years as citizens of this country. Our leader is a person whose moral values are malformed, and who exhibits disdain for the rule of law. And whether I'm right or wrong about our president, I think that for me to declare Donald Trump as an apostate helps us all move to a space where we can begin to understand the gravity and the grim divisiveness of Elijah's prophetic task. When someone claims that someone else is committing apostasy, it's a serious charge, right? Like you're accusing someone of violating the basic, inviolable terms of community life. In the case of President Trump, I might say that that his apostasy is that he is the chief law enforcement official who does not believe that laws and the moral norms they uphold apply to him. 
And now that I've said that, I can't walk it back, can I, right? I mean, I, I put it out there. Declarations of apostasy create a kind of an unbridgeable gulf. It's one of the worst kinds of othering that we can make about another person, right? Uh, one uh, that you can only make if, if you believe that the act of apostasy threatens the very existence of an institution that is essential for the community's life and health. I mean, you can feel for Elijah in the story. I mean, whatever it is that Ahab and Jezebel are doing as king and queen, and we always have to hold these biblical stories, these histories, lightly because they are as biased as histories come, whatever whatever Ahab and Jezebel are doing, Elijah decides that their actions are destroying what is good and true and worthwhile. I'm the Lord your God. You should have no other gods. Before me. Elijah believes this. He does not think you can honor God and Baal at the same time, no more than Jesus seems to think that you can worship God and wealth at the same time. Elijah is terribly afraid. He's afraid that, that because of the power that Ahab and Jezebel have over the people, he is afraid that their apostasy will bring suffering. So Elijah is filled with righteous indignation. Just like Jesus was when he, when he threw the money changers out of the temple. Righteous indignation is a powerful feeling. It can feel noble, like a refining fire, like it was in the hands of some of our nation's civil rights leaders. But we know, too, don't we, that, that, that righteous indignation that is misplaced or disproportionate can be self-absorbed and destructive. I think most of us good, decent folk, I don't know if you count yourself among the good, decent folk or not, but most, most good, decent folk are uneasy with people like Elijah. There was a man who lived in Atlanta for a good long while and ran a ministry down on Ponce de Leon called The Open Door. His name was Ed Loring. Ed Loring loved God and loved people who were poor in the name of God. And a lot of people in Atlanta didn't love Ed Loring because he was too angry and too righteous and too sure of what God said about poverty. It's like most of us prefer to leave accusations of apostasy to the zealots like Ed. Mostly, we'd rather go along to get along. And yet. You knew there was an and yet coming, didn't you? <laughs> and yet, in the, in the middle of Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal... He looks around at all of the good, decent people who have gathered to watch this spectacle. And he lays it out for them like this. He says, how long will you hobble back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow God, Elijah says. If Baal is God, follow Baal. The people... 
gave no answer. So I want to ask you this morning, are, are there moments, are there moments in life when truth or beauty or virtue make their claim on you? And in order to choose the good and affirm the good, you cannot any longer abide its opposite. Let me offer an example. You all know the earth is heating up. And you know that if everyone on earth lived the same way that you and I do, that the earth would collapse. And yet, how much do we really change? I mean, do we call out our friends? Do we call out our neighbors to change? I mean, if you believe in the perils of climate change, stop contributing to it. If you don't, stop pretending that you do. Or how about racism, right? I mean, nobody in here likes racism, I think. But there's a new book by Ibram Kendi called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in the book, he makes a very rigid claim. He says, everything you do, everything you do is either racist or anti-racist. So, like, if you live in a town with real estate values that are so high as to be unaffordable to most Americans, a town in which the black population dropped by 50% in a decade, and that town is not doing anything around affordable housing, is that not a racist town? Will you call it out? Or will you do nothing? I know. I know it's never quite that easy. It's never quite that clear, is it? I mean, life is full of shades of gray. We make moral compromises around us all the time, every day. We do it for our sanity. We do it so as not to make waves with the people around us. We do it for our own comfort. But then Elijah pops up. Asking, how long will you hobble back and forth between two opinions? He asks us, is there not a moment when compromise becomes complicity? Is it possible that my desire to justify myself as a good and decent Christian clouds my judgment so that what I do is not what a good Christian would do? Prophets can distill questions to their bare essentials. And they don't have patience very often for the gray area. Do you believe in protecting the earth or not? Do you believe racism is wrong and must be rejected or not? You claim to be a follower of Jesus. Do you love what Jesus loves or not? The clarity that the prophets can provide us in our lives is life-giving. Their guidance can allow us to step away from the moral equivocations that we maintain and articulate again who we are and what it is that we live for. 
Can I add one more word? I want to add one more word that complicates Elijah's story. See, the strange thing happens. <laughs> it sure does. Do you know how to get it, Beth? Can you all live with that for a minute? I'm, I'm quite sure it's a false alarm. <laughs> a strange thing happens to Elijah just after his bloody win over the prophets of Baal. He flees Jezebel's threats and he goes into the wilderness heading for God's holy mountain. And maybe he goes there expecting a victory party, right? Maybe he expects God to receive him with a pat on the back. boy, Elijah. But Elijah arrives at Mount Horeb, and God's first word to Elijah is, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says, Well, I've been so passionate for you, God. The Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've murdered your prophets. I'm the only good one left. And now they want to take my life. And Elijah is told to come out of hiding because God is coming. And you know the rest. There's the storm, and God is not in the storm. There's an earthquake, and God is not in the earthquake. The blaze, but God is not in the fire. Finally, there is this. Nobody knows what it is. Is it a still, small voice? Is it a thin quiet? Is it just silence? Elijah hears that, and then Elijah hears God telling him to go home. To go home. And, and God tells Elijah to appoint a successor prophet, Elisha. God removes the prophetic mantle from Elijah. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that this is God rebuking Elijah for his way of dealing with the prophets of Baal. Sachs says, in turbulent times, there's an almost overwhelming temptation for religious leaders to be confrontational. Not only must truth be proclaimed, but falsehood must be denounced. Choices must be set out as stark divisions. Not to condemn is to condone. But Sachs, citing the Jewish medieval teacher Maimonides, says that the job of the prophet, and I hope this is your and my job as well, he says the job of the prophet is to be guided not by one imperative, the truth, but by two imperatives, truth and compassion. Sachs describes this as a love of truth, and an abiding solidarity with those for whom the truth has become eclipsed. So let me reframe our call this way. What if our fierce pursuit of justice and truth led us all to reclaim a sense of apostasy? Right? The ability to call out leaders who equivocate on essential matters of justice, or maybe call out ourselves when we look in the mirror. 
But what if the moment that we decided that we have seen someone who has committed apostasy, our impulse is to shower that person with love and mercy and compassion and kindness to try and bring them back to the way of truth by the strength of love. Maybe that is the message of Elijah's story. Don't let compromise become complicity. But never let righteous indignation interfere with your call to merciful love and compassion.